0: Science story.
1: Huh? Is that all your scientists? Uh, they felt it. I, right. I was so and I just happy. Thought, well. I figured
0: it wow. out. It was like that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Erin Barker. And I am your ailing host, Liz Neely. (laughs) And this week, we're presenting stories about the wild, humans and animals coexisting. I'm so excited about this theme. I love wild animals
3: so much. And Erin and I, we got to see tons of them on our most recent trip to Hawaii together.
2: Yes, we have recently returned from a series of shows and workshops that we are producing out in Honolulu, which is why we are a little little, (laughs) jet-lagged and a little little sick, sick, some of us, (laughs) right now. Um, But probably nobody really feels bad for us. (laughs) (laughs) True. While we were
3: in Honolulu and when I was on Kauai, I kept my eyes peeled and I saw so many incredible things, including a native Hawaiian monk seal, which blew my mind. But it made me feel bad to see how many of the other species I was looking at are introduced and non-native species.
2: Right, so those are what species that are kind of brought in by visitors, by colonizers,
3: exactly. So, and the problem is that they can sometimes outcompete native species, or directly prey upon them, or in some really grim cases, cause rapid death syndrome among native Hawaiian tree species. It can, it can be bad. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Rapid death syndrome does not sound great. I have to say. I don't think that's what I have. Don't worry. <laughs> Well, we've got two wild stories for you today. Uh, Liz, are you ready to introduce the first one? So ready. Our first story is from Adam Selbst. It was recorded in
3: July 2019 at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was fireworks.
0: So my parents had just retired and they moved down to North Carolina They had been there about a week before I got the phone call from my mom. Adam, she said, you're not going to believe this, but in North Carolina, it's legal for us to own a tiger. (laughs) It had been one of my mother's lifelong dreams to own a tiger. So... My family was well known for collecting strays. We always had a couple in the house. Um, My mother loved strays. Um, The first one to attack me (laughs) was when I was learning how to crawl. It was our cat Patience and I had blundered into her. Um, I'm 45 now. I still have a faint scar on my face from this attack. Um, A lot of parents, um, upon having a pet, hurt their first son so badly, um, would have sided with the child. (laughs) That isn't how things worked in my house. Um, To quote my mother, I think Adam probably learned his lesson. (laughs) Besides, what are we going to do? Get rid of the cat? That wouldn't be fair. The cat was here first. Um, In the end, they decided not to get a tiger. Not for any of the reasons that you would think, but it's because they already had two cats and they didn't know if those cats were gonna get along with the tiger. And that wouldn't be fair because those cats had been there first. Um, It's fine though, my mother made up for it by working for the local tiger rescue organization. Um, What is a local tiger rescue organization? (laughs) So a lot of people ask me, that's fine. I'm prepared for this question, I'll, I'll, I'll answer it. You see, since it's not illegal in North Carolina to own a tiger, a lot of people think this is a really cool idea and they go out and do it. Here's the thing, um, it's actually quite expensive to own a tiger, first of all. Second of all, I don't know if you guys know this, tigers are actually quite dangerous. <laughs> Third, and most importantly, once you own a tiger, they're actually pretty hard to get rid of. But it's okay, because in North Carolina, they've got a system. If you have a tiger that you don't want, what you do is you get it into your car, and you drive out to a rural section of North Carolina, and you just let it out. (laughs) No, I know. I know. I know but the system works. (laughs) You can't argue with it. They had a tiger they didn't want, then they don't. (laughs) So, my mother started volunteering for this organization that would go around and pick up all the tigers that had been let out and would bring them back to their compound, it's like several acres, and care for these tigers for the rest of their lives. The name of this organization, by the way, is called Carolina Tiger. They are truly doing God's work. Um, you should give them money. I do. Um, <laughs> I spent a lot of time at Carolina Tiger over the past few years. And uh, I, I had a favorite tiger. Um, my, my tiger's name was Jelly Bean. <laughs> um, jelly bean was a white tiger um i don't know if you know much about white tigers they're pretty rare in nature it's a recessive gene it's um You need two recessive genes to come together and make it. I I don't really understand the biology, but uh, it happens about once in every 10,000 tigers in the wild. But white tigers are in demand at circuses and magicians and stuff like that. So what they do is breed them. And the only way that you can breed white tigers in captivity is by breeding two white tigers together. And in reality, that means breeding uh, siblings together. That means breeding a parent with their offspring and, as a result of this, most white tigers are uh severely inbred they uh, are cross eyed they're blind, they have epilepsy, they have club feet, but not jelly bean. Jelly bean was perfect, and he loved me so a couple of years ago, I went down i had i had just bought a new camera and I wanted to take some pictures of jelly bean and uh as I approached the enclosure. He came running up um, to greet me. I love jelly bean. There was only one problem with visiting him, which was his enclosure mate, Tex. Tex was one of the more difficult tigers at Carolina Tiger. The rumor I heard was that Tex was taken off of the main tour after charging an entire class, a kindergarten class, <laughs> of five-year-olds. Creating a mass panic. Twenty kindergartners wet their pants at the same time. It was chaos. Tex is what we say in the in tiger parlance an asshole. <laughs> in this particular time, I went down to take pictures of, of Jelly Bean, and Tex thankfully was nowhere to be found. So I just stepped over the the um, rope that keeps you away from the enclosure. You know it, it's fine. My mother works there. <laughs> <laughs> and I walked up to the face of the cage, and um, the way these enclosures work, it's it's a chain link fence, but it's real floppy, and they keep it really floppy because there's no top. If they're stiff, the tigers could crawl over and they would get out. So they keep it floppy, and the tigers can't get out. So I leaned against the fence to really lean in, and. Jellybean was so happy to see me. He was, he was chuffling and making noises. Chuffling is sort of like what tigers do. It's like the tiger version of purring. Um, so I'm taking pictures and he's posing and everything's going great. And I, out of the corner of my eye or my peripheral vision, I see some flashes of movement. So I look up and I don't see anything. There's nothing. So I go back. I, I, I turn my attention back. To Jelly Bean. And now he's rolled over and his paws are going and he's making all these noises and we're having a great time. But again, I start seeing movement out of the corner of my eye and I look up and again, there's nothing. Then I peer really hard into the distance and it takes a moment, but finally I see it there in the green undergrowth all the way back in the enclosure, a little patch of orange. it's completely motionless. Except for every once in a while, I see the flicker of a tail, like when you see a house cat stalking a bird and he can't quite contain himself. That was Tex. Tex was hunting me. (laughs) What an asshole. (laughs) So I turned around to say to my father, hey dad, look, Texas stalking me and this is when I learned two really important things about Tigers one about Tex individually another thing about Tigers in general what I learned about Tex was how he got his name Tex is from Texas Um, Texas previous owner kept him chained 24 hours a day by a short five-foot chain to a tree and he made his money by charging people to come over and take pictures of Tex Tex only hated one thing more than cameras, and that was photographers. (laughs) The other thing that I learned about tigers in general is that they're really smart, and they will never attack you if you're looking right at them. They'll wait until you turn your gaze away to say something like, Hey, Dad, look. Tex is stalking me. Now, I know that tigers are fast. I knew that beforehand. David Attenborough taught me that when I was like 10 years old. But believe me, you have no idea. I turned back and Tex had closed the distance and was already in the air. It was like being hit by the world's softest locomotive. (laughs) I flew backwards several feet and landed in the dust and my whole family came running over to see if I was okay and help me up and dust me off everybody except my mother who blamed me (laughs) and she stalked over to me with anger flashing in her eyes and she said this wouldn't have happened if you weren't acting so much like prey. And everybody burst out laughing they thought it was the funniest thing everybody called me pray for the whole rest of the weekend <laughs> I forgot my glasses in a restaurant and I went to go run to get them and my father called out look out it's a tiger which would have and, and they all laughed when I spun around and tripped over my feet and it would have been funny had I not just been attacked by an actual tiger <laughs> In a state that has a very legitimate tiger problem. (laughs) I didn't think it was funny at all. And I got really angry and I said, no, what are you talking about, mom? No, no, that's not, how are you taking his side? This isn't fair. Listen, in this family, we have rules, goddammit. I was here first this time. Who's Tex? He's some asshole you just met. I was here first, how? how dare you but it didn't it didn't work at all everyone thought it was hysterical and all weekend i was furious and they were having the time of their lives a few years passed and going on the website of carolina tiger i saw that tex had passed away so naturally i called up my mother to gloat <laughs> and while we were talking I, I took the opportunity to tell her, you know, that really hurt my feelings, because it's not just Tex. It's every animal we've ever had. You you never defended me. You always took their side. Um. And I heard her sigh really deeply. And she said to me, you know what, Adam, I'm not always going to be here to fight your battles for you. At a certain point, you're just going to have to learn to stop acting so much like prey. (laughs) Thank you.
3: That was Adam Selbst. Adam is a writer and graphic designer from Williamsburg, Brooklyn. He hosts the monthly Big Irv Storytelling Roadshow and has been performing around New York City for the past eight years. Adam lives in a bodega art collective with 64 other people, and in his spare time, he enjoys being slowly poisoned by an ancient, weird mold in his shower. <laughs> Don't get rapid death syndrome, parties.
2: Adam. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. I actually looked this up after listening to Adam's story. Uh, so here's a, a fun fact, a science fun fact for you, a science not so fun fact. <laughs> but there are apparently more tigers living as pets in the U.S. than there are tigers living in the wild. What? Yeah. How messed up is that? Okay. So how many tiger pets are there in the U.S.? So according to uh, Born Free USA, which is an animal advocacy organization, they estimate that there are five to seven thousand tigers. That are pets in the United States.
3: Good grief.
2: And obviously they have to estimate that because most uh, United States tiger breeders are not really advertising their numbers. But (laughs) according to the World Wildlife Fund, there are only 3,900 living in the wild.
3: Oh, that makes me feel so depressed. I really never thought that story collider was going to have to advertise like a PSA of don't have tigers for
2: pets. (laughs) It's it's a bad idea. Yeah, uh, normally we say uh, no learning at our shows, but I feel like maybe a takeaway that you should have from Adam's story is don't have a tiger as a pet. I feel like this is this is
3: a lot better than what I wanted to talk about after this was um, the idea that a wild animal or a wilderness, like those words have a lot of meaning, right? And there's all these people who study the rhetoric of language and specifically the rhetoric of wilderness. And I just thought it was so cool when you really start thinking about what is wilderness? What do we mean by that? And it's it's not a natural fact, right? It's, it's more like a, a political achievement. And I just thought this was so cool. But, you know, on one hand... <laughs> Wilderness, a social construct. Tigers, not,
2: not so much. <laughs> they're <very real. laughs> much. they're very real. Very much, very real. Yeah. Wow, you just blew my mind. I'm gonna be thinking about this all day. Yeah. Now. Say goodbye Uh, So our next story today is from Erica Hamden. It was recorded in May 2019 at the Lyric Hyperion in Los Angeles. The theme that night was changing the conversation.
1: By mid-afternoon, the Falcon wanted to eat me. (laughs) And it was shaping up to be the best day ever in the worst place I've ever been. Now, the fact that the falcon was six inches tall, a baby, and didn't even know how to fly yet, meant that the odds of getting eaten were actually pretty low, although I think if you asked the falcon, he would definitely disagree. (laughs) So why was I in a staring contest with a baby falcon in June 2018? Because as you just heard, my job is to build telescopes. Technically, my title is professor, but I spend most of my time either building telescopes, coming up with new telescopes to build or inventing things to make the telescopes better. And it's a great job, and it's taken me all over the world, but sometimes I end up in places that are best characterized as the ends of the Earth. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the reason why I was in the middle of nowhere, New Mexico, in this tiny town that is really trying its best called, (laughs) it really is, (laughs) called Fort Sumner. The telescope that I was there to build is called the Faint Intergalactic Medium Redshifted Emission Balloon, which we call Fireball for short, <laughs> which is a great name for whiskey and a telescope. <laughs> and Fireball is des- designed to observe huge clouds of hydrogen gas that we think surround most galaxies. And it does those observations from the very top of the stratosphere on these giant balloons that it just hangs from. and. um my job there was to lead the team of about 30 people who built Fireball. And NASA does these balloon launches from a few places on Earth. Antarctica is one of them. But they're all really remote because the last thing that you want is for one of these telescopes to land on your house. So Fort Sumner is a very remote place in eastern New Mexico. It's a town of about 800 people. Um, And I say it's the worst place ever, but it's really my job that's there that's the worst place. The town itself is strange. It, um... The closest reasonable grocery store is about an hour and a half drive. It's two and a half hours to Albuquerque. Um, A couple years ago, there were four restaurants, and now there are only two. Um, And there's not much to do. There's a bowling alley, but it's closed unless you pay to open it, and you have to rent every lane for the entire night. (laughs) But there are only six lanes, and so it costs you 80 bucks. But it's giving you a sense of the bar that you have to cross to have a fun time in this town. The bowling alley is owned by the pharmacist, who also owns one of the two planes that are parked at the this tiny municipal airport where we do most of the work. Um, and the work itself is hard, um, and it takes a lot of my mental capacity. And my job there is mostly like um, doing like day-to-day operations. So I figure out all the tests that we need to run, I come up with a schedule for them, I make sure that everybody is doing the things that they're supposed to do, and I try to anticipate all of the problems that they might have and then solve any of their problems. I also have to deal with the balloon people, which is um, not people made of balloons, <laughs> but the NASA people whose job it is to actually get these giant balloons off the ground. And the work is stressful, and I want to do a great job at it, so I, I spend a lot of time trying to control everything and making sure that any problem that happens, I can solve it. And I'm pretty good at solving problems. Some of the problems are the things that you might expect. Um, a component breaks and we need a new component, a, a new copy to make sure we can do the work the next day. So I call a company and I can talk them into making an exception for us and overnighting something at 5 p.m. so we can get it and keep going. Some of the problems are very silly. Um, we work with a number of French guys and one of them was complaining to me that he was so tired of eating white bread and cheddar cheese. <laughs> And so I had French cheese overnighted in from New York City, so he didn't have that problem anymore. And some of the problems are with the balloon people. I need to make sure that they prioritize our tests over the other telescopes that are also there waiting for a launch opportunity. And my preferred method for getting people to do what I want is bribery with food or with telescope te- telescope-themed t-shirts or just like generally being amazing and fun to be around. But, <laughs> Sometimes that doesn't get you the things that you want, and so the alternative is you have to be able to bring the hammer down on people. And so I've had conversations where I tell them that I will burn the building to the ground (laughs) if they don't do the thing that I need them to do. And when you tell somebody that, you really have to mean it. And it's a funny story to, like, relay now, but it's actually not a great experience to go through, to be in that state where you tell someone that you were going to burn it all down. And that actually, I think, encapsulates my experience in Fort Sumner running this project that um, I'm under so much stress to get everything right the first time. I'm trying to control so many things and it makes me into a person that I don't really love. And so it's into this environment that the baby falcon arrives. And so um, one morning at the airport, there was all this commotion around the hangar where we work. Um, And I had been in a meeting previously, um, so I didn't see the, the stuff that happened before. But for days beforehand, we had been hearing these like little bird noises, like chirp, 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 up in the rafters of the building. And we figured like some birds had made a nest maybe above one of the doors, but we didn't have the time or really the inclination to go figure it out. And one morning, the um, the team had opened up the hangar doors to bring some equipment in, and all of a sudden this baby falcon swoops down and lands on the spectra tank. And the French guys caught it, Well, first, they spent a while calling each other and the Falcon idiots in in French. (laughs) They caught the bird before it could, like, scratch any mirrors or pull any wires out or anything. Um, And they put it in this white NASA baseball cap that one of the grad students happened to be wearing. And they brought it outside and they were arguing over what to do with it. And this is when I showed up from my meeting. And I am the person who solves every problem, so my list of things to do just got one item longer, figure out what to do with this baby falcon. And the falcon was obviously very stressed out. It was like occasionally screaming at us. And um, and like its claws were all clenched. And so I figured the first thing we need to do is to make it more comfortable and get it out of this very on brand NASA hat. <laughs> So we get a cardboard box, and we um, fill it up with lab wipes, because that's the closest thing that we have to, like, comfy towels. And we give it a little petri dish of water, and we lay the falcon down in the box. And this is the first time I've ever seen an animal like a falcon up close, and it was incredible. The falcon was truly gorgeous. The feathers had this beautiful pattern on it. It, it. it was an American kestrel, if you've ever seen one of those. And it was light, so light, and it was fluffy and just like, like perfect. <laughs> and it was obviously also very upset. So we moved it to a part of the airport away from where we were working so it could be in like quiet. And um, about once an hour, I would go out to check on it and see how it was doing. And for the first few hours, it was still on its side, like still really upset. And then in the Early afternoon, I go out, and it is no longer on its side. It is standing up in the box. And I'm starting to approach, and it is staring at me over the top of the box. (laughs) And it is so angry. All that I've never seen a creature that wanted to eat me so badly. And I think if it were bigger and could have flown, it would have definitely given it a try. And the intensity of its stare was... um, Unlike anything I've ever seen before, it was like, stop you in your tracks and make you reconsider all of your life choices. (laughs) Breathtaking. And I pause here to say that I really like the project, and I'm not much of a crier, but I cry almost every day that I'm in Fort Summer. And um, I put so much pressure on myself to be perfect and to walk this tightrope of getting everything right the first time. And looking at the falcon in its incredible wildness made me think about why I do that to myself. Um, the falcon doesn't give a shit about planning. <laughs> the falcon didn't decide that today was the day it was going to learn to fly and then come up with a multi-pronged strategy to make sure that it did it right the first time. <laughs> the falcon just jumped out of its nest, it crashed, it got super mad at some humans and then it tried again and eventually it figured it out. And Seeing the falcon and its wildness and and ferociousness, it made me want to be like that. It made me want to be wild. And so while I stand there and look at it, I thought to myself, well, maybe I could take this falcon and keep it with me. And I can ta- I can tame it and I can become wild while I tame it and take some of its wildness for myself. And people tame falcons and I am good at a lot of things. So I think I could do it. And I could just <laughs> add... Add one more item to my incredible list of things to do. Tame the baby falcon that I've stolen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: but then I think a little more about that. And, and if I tame the falcon, I'm gonna make it more like me and I don't want it to be like me. I love it because it is wild and, and crazy. And if I make it like me, I am flawed and anxious and I don't even know how to fly. <laughs> And I love it because it is wild and I want it to stay that way. And so even though it makes me sad, I turn around and I go back inside and get on with my day. And the next time I go out to look for it, the box is empty. And later that evening when we're leaving, I see the Falcon jumping around and trying to take off. And then the next morning, it's swooping around the parking lot. And then for days afterwards... Every time I would go outside I would look up into the sky to see if I could see my falcon. And months later when we went back again to launch the telescope, some days I would see three falcons soaring above the airport and I would know that one of them was my baby falcon. And we did eventually launch the telescope. After a lot of years of work and a lot of things that I tried to control and things that I did control, but in the end the balloon had a hole in it. and We didn't get the data we wanted, and we have to try again. And before the Falcon, I think I would have spent a lot of time thinking about everything that I did wrong, and what things should I have controlled that I didn't control, and how did I fail. But after the Falcon, I know that I did the best that I could. We had to let the telescope fly away and see what happened. And to quote Apollo 13, it was a successful failure in that we learned a lot and nobody died. But we didn't do the one thing that we were really trying to do. But when I think back on it, I learned a lot. I learned that I can get through anything and I can do it with or without a plan, with or without a strategy. And I also learned that I can be fearless if I wanna be. I can do things even though they scare me because that's what's, that's being brave. And I can do things like this right now. (laughs) (laughs) I can, actually learn to fly in a plane. I don't have any wings yet. I can come up with an idea for my own space telescope even though it's probably not going to happen, but I can try anyway. I can move to a new place for a new job and and try to build a new life there even though doing that scares me. And I can be wild and fearless like the falcon. I can fall from a great height and know that I can come back from it. And... Next year when we go back to launch that telescope again, I will be like the Falcon and I know that it will be easier. Thank you very much.
2: That was Erica Hamden. Erica is a professor of astrophysics at the University of Arizona. She develops UV detector technology, builds telescopes and observes galaxies and hydrogen all over the universe. Her last project was a UV telescope that flew on a high-altitude balloon. She is currently leading a team working on a proposal for a UV space telescope. When she isn't building or thinking about telescopes, she has a serious yoga practice, is learning to fly a plane, and loves hiking in the desert around Tucson. And one more thing about Erica, she recently won the Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers, which is a huge deal. So congratulations, Erica.
3: That's amazing. Yeah. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science.
2: The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, your very sick Executive Director Liz Neely. With help from Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Support Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. The
3: stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Tracy
2: Rollin, Gastor Almonte, Audrey Kearns, and Joseph Scrimshaw. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, including Zoe Saunders, Jun Chen, and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special
3: thanks to Caveat and Lyric Hyperion
2: for hosting these shows. (laughs) And to Tigers (laughs) for not consuming us yet. (laughs) And to the Tiger Rescue folks. Very important work. Thanks for listening. Thank you.